0: don't shoot the deputies hello and welcome to don't shoot the deputies a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country at the time of this recording it's may half term of 2021 hello steve are you enjoying the opportunity to slow down during the break
1: hello russell and welcome to all our listeners absolutely i am and it's always a lot better to just take a slower pace during half term enjoy some time with the family and meet up with some friends how about you?
0: Yes, my parents are currently staying with me, Steve, and I hadn't seen them in nine months. So it's really nice to take some time out, enjoy this break with them after a really busy half term. And this idea of slowing down is the theme of our podcast today. We're joined by an author and speaker, Carl Honoré. Now, just to explain the background to where we approach Carl, it all stems from our other episode with Mary Myatt. Listeners will know we love Mary's blogs, and in one of them called Curriculum Pace, she quoted Carl at the start. And the quotation was this, the slow philosophy is not about doing everything in tortoise mode. It's less about the speed and more about investing the right amount of time and attention in the problem so you solve it. Now, after seeing this, I looked into Carl some more and immediately wanted to talk to him. He might not work in the world of education as such, but I think his insights are going to really resonate with teachers today. Carl, a really warm welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Wonderful to be to be with you both. Thank you, Carl, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, Carl, could you start by telling us some more about who you are, and please could you give us some background about the slow revolution? Sure.
2: Well, I'm a um, journalist and a a writer and an author and so on, and I I spent 11 years as a foreign correspondent, and then I jumped into writing books about slow. Um, And I got stuck in fast-forward myself as, as a parent, and I was speed reading Snow White, my version had three dwarves, right? Um, and, and that was kind of, for me, the wake up point. And I, I started investigating not only my own addiction to speed, but the bigger picture. And then I ended up writing three books about this, what has come to be known as the slow movement, the slow revolution. And my most recent book is, my fourth book is about aging and attitudes to aging. Uh, so I my second book actually is called Under Pressure. And that is all about education and parenting through a slow filter. So even though I don't work as a teacher, I come from a teaching background. My parents are both teachers. My brother's a teacher. I have done some teaching myself, and I do a lot of work with schools and parents and communities and so on. So it's very much on my radar what the obsession with speed and busyness and distraction does to our us as families and parents and schools, and especially, of course, what it does to children. And I think that the slow creed is a way out of this. And as the quote you cited at the beginning of the podcast underscores, slow is not, You know, I'm not an extremist of slowness. I love speed, faster is often better. We all know that, but not always, right? And that's the key really to slow with a capital S it's about doing things at the right speed. It's musicians talk about the tempo justo the correct tempo for each moment. So sometimes fast, sometimes slow and all the different speeds, cadences, rhythms, and tempos in between. But ultimately I think when you drill down deeper into slow, it's a it's a mindset. It's about being present. It's about being mindful. People often use that word. It's about giving yourself fully to the moment. It's about, yeah, giving everything the time and attention it deserves. Ultimately slow is about doing everything not as fast as possible but as well as possible. A really, really simple idea, but an immensely powerful. And, and a revolutionary one, because in a, in a world addicted to speed, slowness actually is a superpower. And I think that is especially the case when it comes to the classroom.
0: Great. And it's about enjoying that journey as much as the destination, right? That's That that sort of seems such a key part to this, because I know, you know, I'm thinking about myself here, things as simple as the podcast, which has always been about just joy and love for us, you know, just talking to people and being present as time's gone on. And we've kind of tried to keep to a schedule, you know, our two weekly episodes. I'm conscious sometimes that I'm all revved up in my head just before an episode, and you know, I'm already thinking about the production bit. I'm like, stop, Russell, just enjoy the enjoy the conversation, you know, this moment that we're in right now. So I really, I really relate to that. Now, when I heard all of this um, for the first time, I thought this this totally applies to the world of education, speed, efficiency. You know, they're they're key to what we do in schools. I think. So it'd be fascinating to use this opportunity just to reflect on these principles of, of the slow movement and how they might influence uh, our listeners who tend to be teachers, leaders, everyone working in education. In your book, In Praise of Slow, which I'm sort of working my way through at the moment, Carl, and really enjoying, you talk a lot about relationships that comes up at, in various sort of parts of the book, and that might be a nice place to start. So we've often spoken to teachers who say that their relationships at home suffer because of the demands of their job. Is this something you've seen a lot in your work and what do you see that we can do about this issue?
2: I do. I mean, I think relationships are the cornerstone, well, of everything, right? That's what, If if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the thing that we find, that we cherish most and that we find that makes us most complete and whole and gives life its meaning and texture, our relationships. That's what we're all yearning to get back to is face-to-face contact. And I do think that that's one of the things that we sacrifice most on the altar of speed is relationships. We lose the time, we lose the presence, we lose the energy just to be with other people and to build those strong relationships. And I think teachers are very often on the the bleeding edge of that because of the whole accelerated nature of the education system. They just get the, the, the space for teachers to build the relationships within the classroom with their pupils, between teachers or among teachers within the staff room. And then at home as well, I think that cornerstone, that backbone of career success and just general well-being gets blown away in all of the speed. So what are some of the things that you can do to claw back that time and space at home, particularly? You asked about home and teachers. Mm. I think, well, for a start, you can, and this is something you're seeing not just in the schooling world, but right across the corporate world, especially out of the pandemic, is realizing that you have to draw lines. There have to be boundaries where, where work Cannot go any, you know. It cannot penetrate and percolate any further into a private life. So teachers have to have the freedom and the space to say, up until here, no further. You know, I I will be reachable in these hours, but not in the other hours. Whether that's from other other staff members, uh, the head, or parents, even right. So you have certain times that are blocked off when a teacher at home is just free to be at home, fully 100% at home, uh, away from the coal face, and able to invest in the relationships on the home front. So I think that's super important, you know, rethinking the whole messaging email structure in the school so that, you know, a teacher knows when they can turn on, when they can turn off, which messages must be dealt with immediately, which can wait till tomorrow, which can be ignored altogether. Make all of that super clear so it becomes easier and more permissible for teachers to say, okay, I'm clocking off now at home. I'm clocking off school. I'm clocking on to my relationships in the home. Mm,
1: absolutely. I can not agree more with that. And actually, the idea of email and being contactable 24-7 can be devastating if you don't have these boundaries and principles in place. And um, I'm thinking if we turned it into the school building where we know that relationships are also incredibly important because we just can't work in isolation and we depend on good relationships with our colleagues and, and the parenting community, what can organizations like schools do to prioritize relationships and also allow space for these to flourish as well, Carl?
2: Well, I think you've got to start with trimming the curriculum. I think there's too much, there's just curricular overload in too many schools. And that's just what happens naturally through accretion. People with the best will in the world often start off with new initiatives and that initiative kind of maybe didn't work, but it still harries on and there's still some work to be done with it. And then another initiative comes and, and there's more curriculum and, and, and I think whenever I've worked with schools looking at trying to carve out calm, right? Carve out space and time just to dial down the pressure and open up the the room to forge those relationships and to make space for deep, meaningful learning. The starting point is always trimming the curriculum, right? I mean, I've not met a school yet that doesn't have some room to maneuver towards cutting the curriculum. And as soon as you do that, less is more, right? You create oxygen, you create space so that teachers, peoples, everyone can just breathe more, right? Can focus more on what the curriculum that you decide is really important. You put the eggs in those baskets and then you have more space for the other stuff. And then once you open up that space, there are all kinds of levers and hacks you can pull to to deepen and enrich the kind of just contact within the school. One example I've seen that I've loved very much from um, the last time I saw it was in a school in the United States where they... it's it was it's a it's a primary school so up to year six not a huge school but you know I think it was so sort of three or four hundred kids and what they do is every morning they nominate two children to stand at the entrance of the school and just to welcome everybody coming to the school you know to shake their hand to say hello just a very small injection of humanity just a little pause point to say you are recognized you are welcome here you you are part of this family this community. And it's, you know, it's not something that you can whip out a metric and say, well, this is this, that, and the other, and here's a 10% improvement in test scores and so on. But when the school did what what they could in terms of, you know, researching that, you know, they found that they just changed the whole tenor, the whole feel of the school. it felt there was a kind of a warm embrace, a togetherness that they hadn't felt before. And over time, they began to see that absenteeism went down. Uh, They were having problems with kids having uh, mental health problems. Those all went down. You know, and I think you can trace that back to not, I mean, they did other things as well. That wasn't the only change they made, but I've seen that make a big difference in schools. So that's just one example of what a school can do for free starting tomorrow, right? To make a difference to the kind of level of just human contact, right? And engagement. It's a simple thing. It's right there for everyone.
0: That's beautiful. I think other teachers, as well as children, I guess I guess for all of us, we just want to be heard, don't we? We just want to be recognized. And I had a lovely moment with a teacher uh, who's only in her, I think third year of teaching not long ago. And she said to me, "I, I feel like I've had like a really profound realization about this. You know, I've realized that every child just wants to be heard. They just want to be recognized. It was like she really saw the truth in that, that children just need that kind of recognition, that listening ear. And I think for a lot of teachers, that's something they feel quite guilty that they perhaps don't do enough. You know, they were drawn to teaching because they love children. They love those relationships that you can build with them. Yet once they're into the system, suddenly those moments to stop and hear about what they did last night or ask them about their favorite book and check out how they did in their football on the weekend. It's so easy for that to get squeezed out. Um, what are you seeing in your work it is the impact on young people of this sort of intense speed of modern life?
2: I mean, just to pick up on your point before I dive into answering the question. I mean, it's it's so true. No, no one goes into teaching in order to assign lots of homework or mark exams, right? And yet what what ends up, you know, occupying most of the space and time, it's the stuff that people, that doesn't light up a teacher, right? It's the stuff that we, you know, the box-ticking things. I think to come back to your question, what, what I mean, it's a long laundry list. I think of 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 pain, right? Of drawbacks. I mean, children. I mean, I mentioned the mental health problems. That's, by most measures, seems to be a reaching, you know, almost epidemic proportions. Uh, you know, physical problems. I mean, obesity, um, lack of, you know, physical activity. I think the children are paying a, a, a heavy price mentally and physically uh, for not living a childhood worthy of the name. Right, that that childhood or schooling becomes a race to perfection. That schools end up being high-speed assembly lines where kids are stuffed with academic learning, you know, younger and younger, faster and faster, and then tested over and over again until test scores become more important than learning itself. So I think a lot gets sacrificed on that on that altar of speed and, and metrics. But the the creativity, I mean, this is the the great, you know, touchstone, it's the talisman, creativity is going to save all of us, it's going (laughs) to keep keep humanity going while AI takes over everything else, right? You never stop hearing about creativity in the workplace and so on. And yet, that is the one thing, I mean, we know from all the research that creativity and slowness are two sides of the same coin, there's an intimate bond between them. Uh, and, And yet, we we don't allow the space for creativity to flourish and thrive in the classroom because we're just racing from one thing to the next. Creativity only happens when, in fact, boredom. I mean, we're also terrified of boredom as well, right? Mm, uh, but yeah. boredom, actually, if you if you back off and let boredom happen, again, we know from the, the research, the science, and just anecdotal experience that when you allow, well, not just children, but adults, but children especially to be if you back off and let the boredom happen, slow everything down, that the child will be forced to look into themselves, and work out you know, from their own internal resources, how to get out of that border, how do you, and that's when they learn to use their imagination, right? And, and, and I think that is such a, a crucial and vital part of education is teaching children and giving them the space to learn that art of shifting gears. Sure, sometimes there's gonna be a bit of, you know, you know movement around, it's gonna be a bit fast and things will be happening, but other times you just need to pause, be serene, be quiet, be bored and therefore restless and then have to get yourself out of that restless discomfort. So I I think we're, we're losing all a lot of that. And I think also the relationship stuff to come back full circle, you know, that, that again is, I mean, just simply the ability to listen, right. Which again is something I think we've lost as a society. This is not just something that's going on within schools, right. People are so distracted. They're so pumped up on adrenaline they're so overstimulated. They're so underslept. They're so stressed that they can't focus, right? And, and focus on what other people are saying. And so often, when we're supposed to be listening, and you see this in schools, whether it's from the teacher it's of people, people aren't really listening. They're thinking about mm. something else, or they're waiting for—they're just reloading, you know, waiting for the other person mm-hmm. to take a breath so they can jump in and say what they want to say. So I think we lose the the, the 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 art of listening as well, which is the key to so much learning and connection and. And meaning and so on. So I mean, that's it's the list is longer. But those are some of the big losses, I think that we were suffering now is is in this uh, roadrunner approach to child rearing.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like we are going full circle here. Because if we come back to Mary's blog, where she quoted you, Carl, she's making the case that depth is more important than pace when it comes to learning. So what do you think might be the impact on young people if schools try to do less instead of storming through a curriculum at an incredible pace. I think you'll,
2: you will, we would see a, a glorious renaissance of education because mm. I think one reason we lose kids is that we bore them in the wrong kind of way. We snow them with facts, with fast chunks of curriculum. And that's just, that's like fast food, right? It's mm. ultimately unsatisfying. It's not nourishing. It leaves you sluggish and switched off. And so I think teachers, pupils, I mean, many of, many of us in the education system are, are just going through the motions, right? And that, I think that explains a lot of the disengagement you see in the classroom, a lot of the acting up, a lot of the poor behavior, a lot of the lack of learning and focus. But if you slow down and do less and go deeper on the things that you, you choose to, to focus on, then that's when children will, will light up, right? That's Mm. when you're going to spark their curiosity, you're gonna give them the freedom to play with ideas, to go down a rabbit hole, get lost, have to back up, uh, learn their own lessons, put a foot wrong, all that stuff that is, that's the stuff of life, right? That's what's gonna get you to through every stage of your life after you leave school. If you give them that at the start, you're going to engage them. You know, they're going to want to look, they're going to look forward to coming into school and they're going to talk about what they're doing at school with their parents and friends outside school. It's going to be something that their their world will move from a kind of crinkly, jerky, black and white film to Technicolor Dolby surround sound, right? Which is just so much more engaging (laughs) in every way. So less is more, right? I mean, the old phrase that goes back, you know, however long that's, if you do less, you do it better. People are going to, you're going to take people along with you.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. There's a beautiful quote from cognitive scientist Willingham who says, memory is the residue of thought. And you had me think about that there, which is that if children don't have that space to really ponder on, on the information they're kind of digesting and exploring, that they're not really learning, you know, it's surface level, which is what I think you're saying there that, you know, I want my pupils to be deeply knowledgeable. I want them to know lots of stuff. I think that's important, but I want them to know, I would prefer for them to know a lot about fewer things than to have this kind of surface level knowledge of lots of things. And yeah, it's really challenged me to think because Steve and I have both been involved in curriculum design and Mm. I feel like I've put in a better curriculum than we had before, but I still think there are perhaps certain units of design where I think I've perhaps just put a bit too much content. Like I want the children to have a bit more space to just dwell and think uh, about big ideas, big concepts, rather than just like you say the fast food diet of of lots of lots of facts that's really interesting
2: it's, yeah i mean the two things i'd say to that one is it's the old reflection versus reaction and we live in a society that venerates and is addicted to reaction mm. the reflection is where the is where the music and the magic really happens especially in the classroom and to create those spaces those moments both at school and away for reflection that's really going to launch any kind of learning into 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 orbit right so mm-hmm that 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 and and then i think what you said also there about wanting to give children as much knowledge as possible totally understandable i mean I, I you that's a completely natural impulse but again you fall into it. here's another food metaphor right you fall into the the breakfast buffet metaphor right where there's you know 40 dishes and you end up thinking well i got to have some of that you come back with a plate <laughs> piled up you don't finish half of it you go back you, you you end up feeling you get heartburn you haven't really enjoyed anything that's a little bit what often <laughs> happens i think in a lot of classrooms when a teacher or the whole school just decides, well, we've got to get all this curriculum crammed in. Yeah. And you end up with, you know, breakfast buffet heartburn instead of a small plate with four or five carefully curated dishes, <laughs> which are then exquisitely enjoyed and and deeply and meaningfully remembered right in the, in the future. Can I just give you one little thing, what you said there sure. reminding me of something yes. about reflection in the classroom, because people often think, and this is one of the, the taboos that I'm often up against when I'm, flying the flag of slow, people think, well, to slow down, it's all or nothing, right? You you have to become the Dalai Lama. It's four hours of meditation a day. Otherwise, it's nothing, right? But that's not true. Very often, just small injections of slowness, little little pivot points of slow can deliver huge results. So one example that I've seen is um, in, in a classroom, a teacher I know used to, you know, he, he teaches English for uh, sort of 11, to, so year seven, eight, nine, right? So 11 to whatever that would be, 13, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. And he was finding that whenever he would launch a, 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 throw a question out for debate, that it was always, the discussion was always dominated by the same coterie of, you know, the, the kids who, because every child is different, right? Like the, the fast thinkers, the extroverts, the show-offs would always sort of run the show. And so what he decided to do was to institute what he calls the five-minute rule. So he now throws out the question and then gives everyone in the classroom five minutes just to slow down, ponder, pause, prepare, and marshal their arguments, think over the question, and then opens up the floor. And guess what? Everybody takes part now. You know, the quiet introvert at the back suddenly, who's a little bit of a slower thinker, takes more time to come to the party. He comes to the party now, with ideas that, you know, light up the room, right? So it's just a little, and that's five minutes. It's not five hours. It's not five days, right? It's just five minutes that can make a huge difference in a classroom by injecting that little slow moment, that little moment of pause and reflection.
0: That's beautiful. And it's really supported by what we know about processing time. You know, like you said, some children just need a bit more time. And just because they need a bit more time doesn't mean they're any less intelligent or that they, in fact, some of those pupils are our deepest thinkers. Mm. And like you say, just by providing that, that bit more time for them to digest the question and to to ponder on it, you're going to get much better responses. That's really good. Steve, earlier when Carl was speaking about the kind of settling, it had me think of the snow globe metaphor we use quite a lot.
1: Absolutely, yes. No, I do agree with
0: that. So We talk quite a lot, Carl, about how sort of our our thinking, I really like the snow globe metaphor, which is that we walk around, and I think this is your point, kind of with it furiously (laughs) shaken up. And then like when we just sit it down, which is really counterintuitive, we see things settle and we mm-hmm. get clarity. We can see, we can kind of see through that snow globe. We can see things for what they really are. I guess you must see that a lot in the work that you do, and particularly with leaders, that might be quite an interesting place to end is just reflecting on leadership in schools. They they kind of set the tone for an organization, don't they? Do you see that when you do work with leaders of of schools, of companies, of organizations, that when these snow globes kind of settle, that they that their perspective shift, that they get different. That they get clarity on on, on on the big issues that are troubling them? Absolutely. And two things I say. The first is that if you're going to move the dial
2: in any organization, a school or a Fortune 500 company, you need buy in from the top, right? You need the people at the top of the, the heap to be walking the talk. Otherwise, everyone else further down is too scared or too mm. anxious, or it just won't happen. So, that, that's, a, that's a little footnote I throw in first before I answer your question more directly. Yes, is the answer to that question. So often at the top, when things are just moving around you at 100 miles an hour, it's so easy to get stuck in that firefighting mode, where you're just putting out a fire here, you're dealing with this here, it's crisis management, it's fight or flight constantly. And you're, you're crowding out the deeper, longer term, joining up the dots, thinking that is really what all leadership should be about, right? That's what you're there for, ultimately, it's not to firefight, anyone can firefight, it's the other stuff, the deeper, slower stuff. So yeah, anytime I'm working with a school, especially it's the head you want to get in the room first. You want to have some one-on-one time with, and and, and they know this. I mean, I, 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 I seldom turn up and make these points and, and people's jaws drop and say, well, I've never thought of that before. I've never, because they've all thought, this is just obvious. This is all common sense, right? Because anyone who's been alive <laughs> for a few years knows that you need moments of quiet and calm, and the brain shifts into a richer, more nuanced, more creative mode of thought. Psychologists call that slow thinking, right? Everybody knows you know, that their best ideas don't come when they're juggling 45 emails. They come in the shower, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or doing yoga or going for a walk with the dog. So leaders all know this, right? It's kind of almost what you're doing is giving them permission uh, to, to take that step, to, to create more of those, well, I'm not saying they have to shower more, but you know, more of those slow moments where they can tap into that Thinking And, you know, one way to say it, help them do that is to say, well, look, look at some of the greatest leaders in the corporate world or throughout history have always said that, right? I mean, uh, I mean, Bill Gates used to take two weeks every year, one of the busiest men of the world when he was running Microsoft, and and go to a cabin in the woods. He called them think weeks, right? To do that big, rich, long-term thinking and so on. Uh, another quote that I like from the, the business world comes from Warren Buffett, the legendary investor in the United States, who said once that... Uh, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything hmm. and i think that's also a really useful uh, life lesson for well for all of us but especially for leaders is to streamline is to focus is to take that slow moment to identify and pinpoint what's really important and then throw yourself into that let everything else go so i so often i'll go into school especially and, and be talking to a head and you realize that that person has just taken on everything right They're, they've got to the top often by being very active people who who you know micromanagers they want a bit of they want a finger in every pie and they can't let go you've got to let go you've got to delegate you've got to say no my first book as you said at the outside is called in praise of slow so easily have been called in praise of no yeah <laughs> because the low and no rhyme for a reason you you can't slow down unless you say no and and no is a scary word for many people, especially sort of go getting type A ambitious sorts, right? But no is the secret to 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 getting stuff done and getting it done well because as soon as you say no to something that really doesn't matter, you're saying a really resounding yes to to something that does. And that's such an important f- principle for uh, well for head teachers, for teach for everyone, right?
1: in a school and beyond. yeah. I was just thinking how it takes someone just to be that little bit braver perhaps to just do that and say no and slow down. And, and even the delegation, it really resonates with me in terms of how there can be such benefits in just being that bit braver to go, no, you have to explain the
2: no though. I think, especially at the outset Mm. and you have to explain the slow. I mean, you can't because we're all so hyped up and everything is so fast and that's what we expect is our default option you can't just arrive one day and declare unilateral slow, right? You've got to, you've got to, <laughs> yeah. you've got to explain why you're slowing down, why you won't be answering that email at 9 PM on a Thursday mm-hmm. night, right? You've got to have a conversation within the staff room. You've got to try out little test projects, you know, uh, pilot projects, trials say this week, you know, in the evenings, no one has to answer email or everyone can go home when the, when they're, when they feel their work is done, they don't have to stay in the staff room longer than that. Or, Uh, We're going to start every meeting this week with a period of five minutes of silence for people to gather their thoughts, lower their heart rate, prepare their arguments, marshal their data. And then we're going to see how the meeting goes after that, because at Amazon, that trick leads to meetings that are more streamlined and more efficient and faster. Right? They're just better meetings. Right? More stuff gets done because people have had that slow moment at the start. The meeting is then quicker what I call the delicious paradox of slow, right? By slowing down mm. in the right moments, yeah. you get better results, but often you get them more quickly. So you run that experiment for a week in the school. And then at the end, you come together and say, what'd that feel like? Did it work? Could we modify it? Could, do we junk it totally and do something different, right? And And just get mm. that dialogue going in the school. Everybody is desperate to slow down. You need to break through that wall of silence. And that it's almost like a kind of Mexican standoff, you know, at the end of the good, the bad and the ugly, the three, they're, you know, woo-hoo. it's like, who's going to slow down first, right? <laughs> um, and then once one person does or, or puts it forward as an idea, everyone else says, yeah, I'm desperate to do that as well. And then it becomes easier to just work out the formula of slow that's going to that's gonna work best in your school. But take try things out. Doesn't have to be all or nothing and get conversations going. That, that's, that's the way to, to tackle this virus of hurry.
0: I've really enjoyed talking to you Carl and I just wanted to end by asking you you know if I'm a a teacher or perhaps a leader in a school who doesn't make that kind of final call I'm not the head teacher basically how might I influence uh, my leaders to to consider the the implications of this I mean hopefully they'll listen to the podcast
2: that's a starting point they should all be listening to this podcast <laughs> thank you uh, well
1: yeah
2: <laughs> well I-, I would say and I say this not just for schools, but but, we're, but we are focusing on schools, is if you've got a recalcitrant uh, person at the top or someone who needs some, is you, you need to have them experience it. So I come back to what I said earlier about just proposing a pilot project, you know, so low stakes, mm. short term, just say for the next week, why don't we just try this? Yeah. Why don't we try trimming the homework load by 40% or, uh, you know, what, whatever it might be in the school that's where the the pain point is that's driving the speed, driving the distraction, driving everyone in the staff room around the bend. Find, you know, devise some little pilot project, go to the leader and say, well, look, why don't we try this for the week and see what happens, right? There's nothing ventured, nothing, you know. And and, and once the person experiences slow in the workplace, in, in action, and sees the payoff, then you've broken through, and then it becomes easier. The door is ajar; you can push it further. You can try other pilot projects. You can win them over. You know, you can get the, that person to listen to thousands of podcasts and read endless scientific studies and case studies from schools around the world. That's only ever going to get you so far. Mm-hmm. That person needs to experience slow inaction in their school paying off, and that's that's the game changer. And that can happen, right? If you know, just if it's mm. a small little thing small step to start and build from there.
0: That's great advice. So where can people find out more about you, Carl? And also I'd be really interested to know what's next for you. What are you up to? Sure. Well,
2: I'm easy to find just my name, carlhonore.info, carlhonore.info. And there's everything you could ever, way more than you would ever want to know about me from (laughs) uh, videos, TED Talks, books. I've just brought out a workbook. My pandemic baby is called 30 Days to Slow. Uh, What else am I doing? I've just I've been commissioned to write a children's book about slow travel, which has been a lot of fun. That should be coming out next year. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm always working on this. I mean, I, I do so much work with schools, a lot of speaking all of that has now moved online, of course, with the pandemic, but I'm hoping now that I'll be able to get back into classrooms and back into staff rooms and and working with teachers face to face again soon. But for the time being, the virtual stuff is, um, is plugging that gap nicely too. So um, yeah. So if any schools are interested in, Going further than uh, carlonore.info is, is the starting point.
0: Marvelous. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome
2: conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure from start to finish, guys. Don't shoot the deputy. <laughs>